Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Jessica Pam, alongside my co-producers, Anna Lazares and Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The COVID-19 pandemic is approaching the two-year milestone and many people are increasingly alarmed by the drawn-out nature of our battle with the virus, wondering if, when, and how our lives can return to their normal cadence. In today's episode, we sit down to discuss two aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which at the core reflect different perspectives about how to best move forward with the health response and get society back on track. In our first two segments, Anna Lazares sits down with Professor Drew Fagan of the Monk School and Elizabeth Simmons from Anti-Hate Canada to discuss how an anti-vaccination mandate protest became a movement dubbed the Freedom Convoy. In our final segment, Connor Fraser and Dr. Courtney Howard delve into global vaccine equity and the contributions Canada has both made and hasn't made towards protecting the world's most vulnerable populations. Why has vaccine equity proved such a challenging task? And what is the best way to tackle this global collective action problem? Tune in for the answers to those questions and more. Our first guest is Drew Fagan. Drew is a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He previously spent 12 years in leadership positions with the governments of Ontario and Canada and is a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage Policy Group, a national public affairs firm affiliated with the law firm Macmillan. As a public policy advisor, his clients have included departments, agencies, and boards with all three orders of government, as well as Indigenous organizations and public interest startups. So my first question for you was uh, what started as a group of truckers protesting the vaccine mandate is now turning or has turned into a movement that dubbed itself the Freedom Convo and is now demanding the end of vaccine mandates and lockdown measures. Does this suggest there is a confusion regarding the distribution of responsibilities between provincial and federal government? Yeah, I, I think if you want to get technical about the understanding and the responsibility of the various orders of government, certainly vaccine mandates, you know, within provinces and territories away from the border are, are a provincial responsibility. But as you noted, Anna, the issue really started and was, you know, certainly it's been in the makings for a while. We've known that a certain percentage of Canadians have been concerned about you know, the view that their freedoms were being taken away from them. But the, you know, the immediate rationale for the, the protests was the actions at the border with regard to vaccine mandates at the border, which really were a federal government responsibility. It then morphed into something bigger. And I think the niceties of sort of federal provincial relations, whether they were lost on people or not, it doesn't really matter all that much. The protest is about a mentality 
that, you know, goes to individuals who think that, you know, their actions are being unfairly restricted at a time when I guess certain, you know, a growing percentage of Canadians, in fact, think that it's time to start moving from treating COVID as an epidemic to something closer to endemic. So, you know, the protest and the, and the, uh, the trip to Ottawa and the actions in Ottawa may not have been accepted by anything more than a small percentage of Canadians, the polling shows, but nevertheless, they did catch something, even in a rough and ready way with regard to some underlying concerns that I think a growing percentage of Canadians have about restrictions. Yes. We probably don't want to look at the details of this so much as you know, the, 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 the mentality behind it. I, I'm reminded of a comment you know, made about Donald Trump in 2016 during the election campaign. And it was a, quite an insightful comment by a journalist at the time who said that the elite, might have been after the election, the elite in the United States took Trump literally but not seriously, and Trump supporters took him seriously but not literally. And I guess the question is, to what degree do we look at the protest um, and the supporters of the protest literally or seriously? I don't think we, you know, we need to look at the details of the so-called manifesto and sort of poke holes in it because they don't understand the niceties of intergovernmental jurisdictions or, you know, other matters other responsibilities of elected leaders, as opposed to just understanding the anger that's out there with regard to, you know, issues of so-called issues of freedom. Now, philosophically, I think they've, I think most people would say that they also misunderstand, you know, the, the meaning of freedom to a certain extent, and certainly res- disrespect in some some instances, and maybe more broadly, you know, issues of understanding of other perspectives. Essentially, they, you know, were holding Ottawa hostage to some degree for, and that's not something that, you know, is to be admired, I don't think. But there is an underlying view. And and one thing I think that's interesting, and it doesn't mean that they've captured the broad mass of the population, but the percentage of Canadians who think it's time to move on. Um, from vaccine mandates and to start opening up to a greater extent is rising, as it is in the United States. The United States, you know, the balance between health measures and so-called freedom, freedom of action, it has been different in the States generally, although it's varied there, just as it's varied here. But we've biased ourselves, you know, on a health uh, risk basis to a greater extent than the United States, but it is moving. And I think they caught a little bit of that, which is not to say that they've got broad support from the population, but they did catch something. Yes. Given that we've seen that there are legitimate claims to this protest, however, the way it's been brought forth to the government has made it harder for there to be a conversation either publicly or between these groups. Given how strong the liberal government is there an outcome where we can see there being a middle ground between this protest and the government? Or do we think that the government will stand on its ground and keep everything in place? I don't, I don't think there's a middle ground between you know, the, the particular views of the protesters and the government. The government's very been quite outspoken with regard to its criticism of their actions and their viewpoints. 
and some of the extremist rhetoric that and actions that have been taken by the protesters and gauche basically and worse in some cases but i do think there's going to be movement as the as the omicron variant the surge of omicron cases declines you know, into a different mentality with regard to how we're going to manage the pandemic. I think the question is how quickly. You can see Saskatchewan moving more quickly to undo vaccine mandates. The prairies are probably going to be other provinces less quickly, depending on the uh, hospitalization rate and other concerns. So, so you, I think you will see some movement. Um, one of the issues with regard to the federal government, you know, I think that we have to take into consideration as well is what their responsibility is and what led to these protests in the first place, which was a border measure. But it's not like the border measure was something that we did unilaterally, or if even if we did it unilaterally, we did it at the same time that the United States imposed something similar. And so it's not like the uh, the original impetus for the protests was something that the Canadian government had you know, entire control over. The United States wanted to do this themselves. The United States, which has been more open with regard to these measures. And even in the instance, you know, final point is well known. I mean, truckers and trucking organizations, major trucking organizations, haven't been particularly supportive or not supportive of all of these protesters, in part because, like just about any sector of the economy, the vast majority of individual members are vaccinated. I think the claim is with regard to truckers that 90% are vaccinated. You know, so we're talking, even within the top trucking industry, a relatively small percentage. And among the protesters, a smaller percentage still of people who've, I don't know the term, acted out, uh, if you want to use it that way, and keep things in perspective. But things are moving. Mm-hmm. Could you explain to us what exactly the vaccine mandate was? So what did the federal government put in place on January 15th that started this movement? Well, I mean, as as you well know, there was action taken with regard to restrictions on people who weren't vaccinated in terms of cross-border travel. And I'm not sure that the actions were taken on both sides of the border at exactly the same time. But there was no question that they were imposed, whether independently or with an understanding of what the other side was going to do at a, at a relatively late date. Vaccine mandates um, have been put in place in all sorts of across the country by provinces. And in fact, there have been instances where provinces wanted to take tougher action and backed off. This is not the first case in which effectively, you know, there, you know, healthcare workers, for example, in Quebec, in the fall, there was an expectation of, uh, of action taken there for those who weren't vaccinated. And in the end, the province backed off to a certain extent. It wasn't felt that the two governments, the United States and Canada, wanted to back off here, which may be part of the reason for the resentment, this sort of sensibility that during the pandemic, truckers have gone above and beyond. I think a lot of people, frankly, have gone above and beyond, including parents of school-age kids. Everybody's gone above and beyond. I'm not sure you get special treatment that's, you know, or, or uh, health, best science 
swept aside because you've been working hard. Everybody's been working hard and working under challenging circumstances. So, One major concern about this mandate was that it would impact our supply chain or could potentially do so. Many business networks have come up and gave interviews and asked the government to appeal or delay the implementation of this mandate for fear of it causing a supply chain issue and lacking food in grocery stores, basically. Do you think this is something we could see happening? Well, there have been problems with supply chains. And the degree to which this is actually due or what's causing it, you know, is a subject of open debate. This, you know, the, the, the lack of truckers, you know, whether it's because of lack of vaccination or a whole bunch of other challenging issues, you know, is something that, you know, has to be taken into account. You know, my local grocery store, the lettuce isn't what it once was. But all things considered, that's a really relatively, you know, small challenge in the total total scheme of things. So the supply chain challenges, supply chain challenges, you know, have been felt in a bunch of ways, including with regard to inflation. So, and that's one of the reasons why prices have been rising as quickly as they have, including food prices. But there have been problems at the stores on the shelves. I mean, it, it may be somewhat overdone. I can see opposition parties trying to take advantage of it. And pictures that have been shown in certain cases seem to be more exception than rule. The inflation, I think, to some extent, is, is, is the greater risk. And that's been caused to a certain extent by this as well. And it's, it's being faced, faced in the United States as well. So some of it is, is weather-related. It's the middle of winter in Canada. If we're talking about produce to a sizable extent, it's coming from south of the border or south of the border squared from Mexico and parts south of the United States. So it's, it's a mix of factors, I think. And those are factors that have been going on for quite a while and have been exacerbated by the pandemic. However, specifically with the protests, could we see prolonged protests and a prolonged stop of kind of the way business is going uh, as usual in Ottawa affect these food shortages? Could we see that happening? Well, it's going to be interesting to see the reaction in Ottawa generally over the the coming weeks. Um, You know, certainly the protesters became unpopular in the city pretty quickly for a series of outrageous acts, the War Memorial, Terry Fox Memorial, others, but also the fact, you know, businesses in downtown Ottawa closed for reasons of security or perceived security, certain behaviors, loud honking and things like that in downtown neighborhoods. As as the mayor, Jim Watson, said, you know, people live near Parliament Hill, increasingly so, in fact, downtown areas been, well, it's always been populated, but population's been rising in, in center town, as it's called, or the Byward Market and things like that. It's not pleasant, right? So, you know, did they, did they, you know, catch something, so to speak, you know, zeitgeist a bit with regard to a backlash, even here, much bigger in the States? Yeah, a little bit. I'm not sure they've helped their cause particularly. Doesn't mean that over the course of the coming weeks, there isn't going to be an increasing movement depending on the results going forward with the Omicron variant of, uh, of reopening. But, you know, I guess it's a mix. It's a mix you know, it's a mixed bag, I suppose. Now on supply chain, you know, there's no question that 
you know, the government, you know, recognizes and it's been caught a little flat footed by the inflation challenge. There was an expectation as recently as the fall that this was very much something that was transitional. I think since then, there's been a greater recognition that it may not be, even if it's not a long-term challenge, you know, and there's greater concern, not just in Canada, but in the United States and across the Western world with regard to the impact on prices. And that's something that we haven't really, you know, had to worry about for a good 30 years, you know, so we'll see where that goes as well. And the potential political impact of it. The Conservatives have been pretty quick to try to take advantage of it politically and to place it at the feet of the prime minister. We'll see what kind of impact that has the weeks ahead. Mm -hmm. And finally, with the reopening, we mentioned Ontario slowly, Quebec, and even Saskatchewan, which announced that earlier this week. Do you think the movement will just lose its momentum within the greater population and the more mainstream followers of the movement as some provinces reopen? I think there's going to be growing pressure on governments and pressure that the government's recognized. No, no government wants to keep these measures in place longer than they have to. There continues to be a sense in the medical community, the scientific community, that these measures remain helpful and necessary. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that we may not be moving in a month, a couple of months, but we had a reopening in recent days in Ontario, Quebec, a partial reopening. You know, these are welcomed everywhere, right? You know, so you have the protesters, which were a relatively small group of, you know, of individuals. And you have within that small group, a smaller group of people who've acted irresponsibly, but within a much larger group of people, and it's growing, who believe that the time has come for changes. Ontario, biggest province, is moving into an election. I think the the governing conservatives, the Doug Ford conservatives, are going to be sensitive to that. But that doesn't mean that the liberals are going to be insensitive to it. Every government, you know, wants to move when they can. Sensibilities are different in different provinces, as we noted. Saskatchewan is already being a first mover on this. But we've seen in the past individuals who have tried to be first movers. Think about Alberta last summer, and it came back to bite them. So risk management, smart risk management, listen to the science, don't act precipitously. I think it's fair to say that many of the protesters want government to act precipitously because they don't believe Um, in the kind of risk management that most governments, just about all governments in the country, are undertaking. Once again, that was Drew Fagan from the Monk School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Our next guest, Elizabeth Simmons, is the Deputy Director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. The Canadian Anti-Hate Network is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization with the mandate to counter, monitor, and expose hate-promoting movements, groups, and individuals in Canada using every legal, ethical, and reasonable tool at their disposal. Elizabeth Simmons brings a decade of experience monitoring and infiltrating the extreme far right, as well as expert knowledge on hate movements and networks. She has been published in the Toronto Star, 
partnered with Vice World News on investigative reporting exposing influential neo-Nazi propagandists and assisted academics with their work. Hello, Ms. Simmons. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Perfect. What is Anti-Hate Canada? Uh, so the, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network is a nonpartisan, independent nonprofit with the mandate to counter, report on, and document and expose the racist and far-right in Canada. I wanted to start by asking you about the vaccine protest that it's making its way towards Ottawa, which started around January 22nd. This movement is now attracting much attention with comments from personalities such as Joe Rogan, Trump Jr., and Canada's transport minister, who says uh, concern the truck convoy may be becoming a lightning rod for far-right fringe politics. Why do you think that is? Because it, it is a lightning rod for far-right fringe politics, but it, it does go kind of beyond the convoy itself. So the convoy is, is really just kind of a, an evolution of where the movement's been going and, and growing since not even the onset of the pandemic, but even before that. So if you look at some of the folks who are involved in the organizing of the convoy, you'll find that they actually have a, a documented history going back to Yellow Vest Canada. Before that, M103, there, there was quite a large ground level movement to argue and fight against that before Yellow Vest Canada. And then that kind of moved into the Yellow Vest Canada stage. And then when Yellow Vest Canada started to die out, it then that was the, when the pandemic hit, right? So it's kind of a continuation of all of when we're when we're talking about the convoy and we're looking at the people who are organizing it and the people who are supporting it, it it's it's really just a continuation of of, of those ideas and those grievances. So it, it is a lightning rod, but the mandates themselves, which we don't actually have a position on as an organization, we we actually feel that there are legitimate grievances and criticisms to be made. And those are being lost because of the, the racism. The, the focus is on, is on the hate, and there's a lot of the hate. And I think that it's actually doing a disservice to the folks with those legitimate grievances. So it, it is a lightning rod, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's just a continuation of what we've been seeing for years. So these past movements that you mentioned did not gather as much support as this one. So as early as this morning, they had close to 290,000 followers on Instagram. And we have messages from people all over Canada and even in the U.S. and internationally that are claiming to be joining the protest that's going to start today and then continue throughout the weekend. Are we starting to see a more generalized support map among the population for this movement? And is it growing out of this fringe politics category that has been put in by media? Yes to both. So the pandemic has kind of created a, a perfect storm, right? We we actually call the pandemic manna from heaven for, for, for these movements. So Every iteration of, of the what we call like the patriot movement or like the far right populist movement, every iteration of it has more and more people because the grievances that they appeal to and the list of arguments that they make and, and the, their, their, their rhetoric kind of evolves and changes with, with each iteration. So um, Yellow Vest Canada appealed to fewer people because it didn't have the large scale adaptability or appeal to people who are now suffering from the pandemic. There are, are many people suffering from the pandemic. And when you have such widespread disinformation and misinformation on the internet, and people are really going down these rabbit holes and, and you know, 
really immersing themselves in this, this harmful kind of information that's being put out there, it, it doesn't surprise us to see that it's growing because social media is, is built that way. It's built on al- algorithms. So, you know, you can start a blank Facebook and like a few, you know, COVID conspiracy pages. And the next thing you know, that stuff is being fed to you all the time. And that can be said for TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you know, any, any social media. So when, when, the, when the social media companies are feeding this information to you and you're creating kind of a bubble where all you're hearing are, are these ideas. And then these people who perhaps would never normally associate with, with hateful ideas, once they kind of open themselves up to the idea that maybe there's microchips in the vaccine, or maybe the vaccine is a means to, you know, mass sterilize or commit mass genocide, which are all claims we've seen. Once you kind of open yourselves up to those ideas, you're then kind of primed and given a soft landing for the more extreme, more extreme ideas. So we, we have seen people, regular everyday folks who have over the course of a few months gone down to the level of like, oh, it must be the Jews who are behind the, the pandemic, you know, or maybe it's the Muslims and, oh, it's a conspiracy behind those groups of people to kind of, you know, influence world politics or what have you. So they're kind of primed for those ideas already. And it's creating what I would consider like a mass radicalization event where I'm I'm not sure how we're going to come back from this. Given how easy misinformation spreads on social media, do you think that the current support this, so there's the Freedom Convoy 22 page and a lot of pages that have come out from this movement. Do you think the support they have is going to transfer to the protests in Ottawa? Yeah, there's a large difference between the two, you know, so the people who will take action and actually show up to an on the ground, you know, event is is always going to be far fewer than than the number of people that are engaged in online. And and that doesn't even consider the, the fact that there's, you know, inauthentic activity online where a lot of these accounts may not be real people, right? They, they may be driven by malicious actors who are have goals to kind of further cause that division. You know, we've seen that before in these kinds of movements. If we look back at the Yellow Vest Canada, which again, I mean, uh, the, the same people, the same people who are organizing this were involved in the United We Roll convoy. They're, they're involved with the Yellow Vest. It's basically just the second, the second version of that. You know, it's the Redux, it's a sequel. So like, it's the truth, you know? And, and, and I think if we look back at, at the, the Yellow Vest Canada movement, you saw far fewer actually going to the events than you saw online. The webs, like the Facebook pages have like over a hundred thousand people, but the events themselves, I mean, on a good day, they might've gotten 60. Now with the, with the convoy in 2019, there was a couple hundred people on Parliament Hill, but not the number that they said were going to be there. And I think we're going to see the same here. I, I do know that the numbers are, are much bigger, much more now than they were in 2019 with the truckers convoy. That's for sure. But I, I don't think we're going to be seeing, you know, thousands and thousands of trucks coming up from the U.S. I don't think that we're going to see the number of trucks that the supporters are saying are going to, are going to arrive. I, I think it's going to be far fewer than that. But there's certainly a, a, a distinction to be made between the people who show up and the people who actually, who just share, share content. 
but it's both damaging in, in, in different ways. You know, sharing the content is, is just, is just as bad because all you're doing is kind of further priming other people to kind of fall into this, into this space, which doesn't do anybody any good. And, and in the end, they're going to be disappointed because they've set themselves up for failure. They're not going to be successful. And then they're going to blame whoever they're going to blame for it. And it's going to add to that rage and, and fuel that fire. Mm-hmm. A lot of media has been comparing this convoy to this to a similar convoy that left Alberta towards Ottawa in 2019, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. They were also claiming to be working to unite Canada and they had a lot of the same vocabulary that's being used. Mm-hmm. How does it differ? How is it similar to what's happening right now? Doesn't differ at all. It's <laughs> the same thing. All right. <laughs> it's it's the same thing. It's like it's deja vu. You know, it's it's just on a larger scale and it appeals to more people because of the pandemic grievances. And you know, you had journalists who were embedded with the United United We Roll convoy and and they you know, when, when they went to print, they were like, this is in effect, a yellow vest convoy, you know, that that's documented. And that wouldn't happen now because there are so many threats being made towards journalists. Like journalists are really being made to be, you know, the enemy of the people. Um, So that's me, that's you, that's anyone that writes about them that they don't think is favorable enough. And it can be really scary. This push to kind of limit the coverage they're getting from traditional media they're giving out very little interviews to major outlets uh, and everything they're doing is communicating straight through social media right now. So this clearly seems like a thought out plan to control the narrative, but also there's use of these symbolic words, you know, like freedom convoy. We're hearing a lot of in God we trust. Mm-hmm. And that feels very misleading compared to what the group is actually, you know, promoting in truth. We see this with, with these far-right populist movements all the time, at least within like the Canadian landscape, is they use these very benign, very benign language of freedom and unity. I mean, I can't tell, like, the, the word unity is like ruin for me because I see it so often over, over so many years. Yeah. Everything's unity. <laughs> so freedom, unity, you know, God. And, and I, I would not go as far as to say that they're, like a dog whistle in the broader sense, but contextually they're, they're definitely an indicator and they're definitely whistling to people who would be susceptible to, to this kind of messaging. It, it, it's just, it's a very laundered, very safe, very kind of palatable and approachable way to kind of bring people onto your side. Cause who doesn't want freedom? Who doesn't want unity? You know, like who doesn't want those things? Everyone wants those things. And, and they're, they're appealing to that. And they're, they're able to kind of shield and mask the, I wouldn't say true intentions, because again, I think there are lots of people involved in this convoy who do want to see change, who do actually have their, their hearts in the right place, but they have to look at who they're standing shoulder to shoulder with, right? And if people with hateful ideas are going to mask their intentions with language like unity, you have to ask yourself why, right? And I think it's important for folks to understand too that there are groups who are looking to exploit this movement in order to achieve a goal that has nothing to do with unity and freedom. There are, you know, neo-fascist and white nationalist networks who are planning to be there. 
this weekend. And they have talked openly about how it would be great if there was another January 6th. They're openly referencing Hitler in support of the convoy. One example is one of the networks, I guess like ideological figureheads, was on Telegram and, and he he wrote HH and then in brackets honk honk for, for the truckers. Well, HH is is it's code for, for, you know, saluting Hitler. So, and then the comments are just full of, you know, HH brother and all kinds of, you know, they knew what he was saying. They, 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 they know, they know what they're, they know what they're signaling to each other, but they kind of, they also use language to shield and, and to hide. And that's really a common propaganda technique is, is to use language to both manipulate and, and really deflect from what your, from what your true meaning is. And I think if we're talking about, the group is talking about unity and freedom, you got to look a little bit further. Okay. What are the people who are actually involved? Like what are their personal like philosophies? What are their personal belief systems? And what are they actually trying to, to hope to achieve with this movement? It's really interesting how this movement has managed to gain so much traction so quickly in a way that's kind of working to legitimize its purpose. And that includes, you know, as we said, there are legitimate grievances here that need to be talked about, but there are also, you know, other issues that are being tacked on to this movement. And so we got comments from former federal conservative leader that called Trudeau the biggest threat to freedom in Canada. He said in a tweet, thank you, truckers. Trudeau is attacking personal liberty and threatening everyone's ability to get groceries because of this overreach on vaccine mandates. He is the biggest threat to freedom in Canada. We can take a second and sit with that. Words like these have a lot of importance in legitimizing people in this movement who may not have the best intentions as we discussed. And again, comes back to this idea that this is not a fringe movement anymore, but it's being turned into a legitimate movement that people can support or people can openly talk about because of comments from politicians such as these. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to talk about this, actually. So and, you know, in 2019, Andrew Scheer supported the United We Rule Convoy, and, and it seems like he hasn't learned his lessons. It's difficult to see the political leaders coming, the mainstream political leaders kind of rallying to support it. And I mean, my personal take on it is that they're hemorrhaging supporters. They're hemorrhaging their base to the fringe politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're looking to just like get them back. And the problem with that is it doesn't work right? You, you pander to them and you tell them that what they're doing is right. It doesn't mean that they're going to come back to you. They're just going to get further entrenched. And we saw that happen with the U.S. We saw, we saw the, the, the GOP, the Republicans pander to, to the conspiracists and, and, and mm-hmm. the far right, and they lost the party entirely to those people. The party is now those people. We, we run the risk of the same thing happening here. You know, I, I, I know in the, the election, Mark Friesen, who ran for the for the People's Party of Canada, which, you know, in, in before 2020 was or before 2021 was was a fringe party. Now it's it's gaining a lot of support. And Mark Friesen was saying on a live stream, I think it was like the night before the election. He was saying that even if they don't win, they're doing good by moving the Overton window. And so I'm not sure if listeners will know what the Overton window is, but concept where the more that people talk about something in public, the more the public will be open to those ideas and, and the more public opinion will shift. So the more that they talk about these ideas and they talk, they, they legitimize these movements, it's shifting the window further to the right in order to allow more space for them to take up. On the other end, well, taking into account 
the fact that misinformation has been a huge actor in this movement and its effect on social media, what kind of advice would you be able to give our listeners who are seeing this information go through information that sometimes is phrased in a way that that feels very legitimate and that feels like it's, you know, it's about grievances. It's about not being listened to. It's about not having a place in politics. How can we differentiate, you know, those legitimate feelings from who is sharing this message? I think you just have to look at the people who are involved. You have to take a closer look because I mean, they know how to play the game. They know what they know, what language to use. And it really comes down to the motives of, of those individual people. And I think too, it calling on, on the movement leaders to actually eradicate the people with, the, with those ideas in order to boost the legitimate grievances is really important. Like we have pretty tremendous amount of messages and, and emails from people who are very upset with the fact that our organization is talking about the hate elements, but as far as I'm concerned, if people care about this movement, they should be doing the same and they should be looking to eradicate those people too, because that will just bolster and, and legitimize the movement further in a way that is good and healthy. In terms of what people can do to sort of differentiate between misinformation, disinformation, and truth, try to find the information from another source. You know, does the account look like it's fake? There's a lot of bots and fake accounts out there who are spreading, Mm -hmm. you know, disinformation. It's all very, you know, typical common sense, I guess, sort of approaches to it. But also understand too, that anybody can be taken in by disinformation. It's designed that way to, to appeal to people. And social, and you know, social media is designed to keep you angry. It's designed to keep you upset. That is their business model. So, Facebook, especially, like there are studies that show that Facebook's algorithms are intend to keep people angry. Mm-hmm. So, check in with people who study this stuff. Different news sources. So, you know, you can check in with independent news sources if you don't like mainstream news. Don't get all your information from one news source, and don't get all your information from one type of ideology. You'll you know, look, look for news that actually is, is credible, but think about what credible means. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on with us. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Elizabeth Simmons from Anti-Hate Canada in conversation with Anna Lazarus. For our final segment, Connor Fraser speaks with Dr. Courtney Howard, an emergency physician in Yellowknife and a clinical associate professor in the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. She is a nationally and globally recognized expert on the impacts of climate change on health and in the broader field of planetary health. She has additional academic interests in ecological grief and the interaction between social movements, societal change, and well-being. Dr. Howard has made several appearances for national media outlets such as CBC, the Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail. Good afternoon, Dr. Howard. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And how are you doing today? I'm great. It's uh, bright and sunny and clear and cold up here in Yellowknife. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about global vaccine equity today. And I'd like to start off with, with a high-level question. How would you define equitable global vaccine distribution? 
I think what's become really clear is that no one is safe until everybody has an opportunity to thrive. So to me, equity is when everybody on earth has the same opportunity to have access to a vaccine. And that includes not only having the medication in your proximity, but also having trained staff who can administer it, uh, who have the proper tools to also administer it. So that would be how I would look at uh, vaccine equity. You touched on this. Uh, briefly, but what are some of the arguments in favor of equitable global vaccine distribution? Why should Canadians care about this topic? Well, number one, it's the right thing to do. I think Canadians in general have a sense of fairness and can understand that it's really not fair. For instance, you know, my children um, have had access to their vaccines, whereas some of my colleagues who are providing bedside care in other countries haven't yet themselves had access to vaccines. And that doesn't seem fair to me. And it was actually uh, the day I registered my kids for their vaccines that I decided to become more active in advocating for vaccine equity. And meanwhile, some of the doctors who do this have described our current approach as resulting in a variant whack-a-mole approach. So essentially, we know that variants develop when they are having an opportunity to replicate. And so the more places in the world we have unprotected people, the more the virus has a chance to replicate and to transition to a slightly new form that can then come back to reinfect us and cause another wave of you know, as we're seeing here right now, Omicron or the next thing uh, up in Canada. So I'm getting a sense that there are essentially two broad arguments why we should be caring about equitable vaccine distribution. Number one, it's the right thing to do. How would we feel being in the shoes of someone in another country who doesn't have the same access or opportunities that we do? And secondly, it does have a, a tangible benefit in reducing the, the incidence of new variants. So can you walk us through uh, the commitments and positive contributions that Canada has made towards equitable vaccine distribution? Right, so this isn't the first time where we have seen inequitable distribution of either medical care or pharmaceuticals between the North and the South. And so it was anticipated at the beginning of the pandemic that we would need a distributive system. And so the WHO with some partners, um, Gabby, the Vaccine Alliance, set up something called COVAX, which is a facility and a series of platforms that's designed to help distribute uh, vaccines um, through the world. And so Canada committed to delivering 50 million vaccines to that COVAX facility but, facility, but has only delivered 12 million. And the COVAX facility itself has only delivered about half of the 2 billion vaccines that promised last year. So neither the globe as a whole or our country are delivering on our commitments to lower and middle income countries when it comes to vaccines. So you mentioned this COVAX facility which, I, as I understand, is sort of like a pool where countries can contribute uh, money or vaccines into a central location, and then the people running this facility from the WHO get to decide how it's distributed in the most e effective way. Why has this initiative been less successful than many had hoped? Uh, is it just you know, a lack of funding? Is it, is it that they aren't able to purchase enough vaccines because other people are waiting in the queue with manufacturers? Why has this not been, you know, the, the solution that people had hoped for at the beginning of the pandemic? 
So I think there's a variety of reasons and you have, you've named some of them. Basically, uh, this is a power issue. At the end of the day, we have not in Canada really delivered what we said we would deliver because really our politicians know that people in other countries don't elect them. And so their motivation for making sure that we are at least allocating some priority to that type of supply is a lot lower than it is um, for them to be making sure that Canadians have supply. And so if you sort of picture Canada as an example and realize that many other countries have politicians who will be acting in a similar fashion, it kind of makes sense that, that both from finances, both in terms of the actual resources themselves, these things have not been delivered at the necessary level. And furthermore, at the beginning of the pandemic, when there really was only a few vaccines who that had been approved, uh, when numbers were particularly low, the power was really in the hands of the pharmaceutical companies because they knew that it was essentially a uh, seller's market. They had most of the, uh, the power in that situation. And so what it meant was that even if politicians at that point were trying to do the right thing, they were worried that they could end up being blackballed by the pharmaceutical companies if they were trying to play hardball with them. And all of it resulted in our politicians and people in other countries as well just not uh, maybe standing up to the corporations as much as they would have had there been more supply at the outset. So some of this has to do with when the vaccines came online, what the numbers were, as well as the general power dynamics between governments and corporations and uh, electorates and governments. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a great insight. And it relates to a question I was hoping to close with, but since we're on the topic of power, which I think is really central to how this is all played out, I do believe, and wouldn't it have been, you know, political suicide, essentially, for a government in, in a wealthy country like Canada to limit their uptake of vaccines in favor of, you know, donating more to developing countries, and especially uh, with, with, the, with the current moment where pandemic fatigue is becoming more widespread, and people see boosters as a way of returning to normal lifestyles, can you take us through, uh, in your view, the conditions in which a more equitable vaccine distribution uh, would be politically feasible? I think there's two things. There's number one, our current situation, and then number two, what we can take from this situation as we look forward to plan a new system that could work better. So certainly, I think there's no government in the world that would prioritize the needs of another population over its own. But at this point in the pandemic, Canada has way more vaccine than we actually need for our population. So any excuse we may have had prior, you know, doesn't hold water. Additionally, we have been uh, not supporting the TRIPS waiver at the WTO, which seeks to suspend patent rights for these vaccines. So we have been not supporting the ability of other countries to increase the actual supply. And at this point, when we have enough vaccines, that, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. We should be supporting the TRIPS waiver. We should be actively supporting technology transfer to other countries. We should be making sure that when we donate our um, vaccines that we have, they come with syringes. They go there in enough time for the governments of these you know, countries that 
don't have the same level of development in their healthcare system that we have. You know, we know even here, doctors and nurses are exhausted. Can you imagine what it's like in a lower and middle income country that didn't have a stable or well-developed healthcare system in the first place, where now they've lost some of the few healthcare providers that they've had because they weren't themselves vaccinated. And they're now trying to organize a vaccine delivery logistics exercise where it may be much hotter, where cold chain may be much more difficult to maintain in the face of decreased uh, healthcare professionals as well as decreased equipment. So we need to take all of that into account, make sure that we're donating our vaccines with plenty of time before their expiry dates for them to get into arms in a lower middle income uh, country system. So there's a lot we can do now. Into the future, though, we know this isn't going to be our last pandemic. You know, the climate is changing uh, up here where I live. We're already two and a half degrees Celsius warmer than we were when an 80 year old elder was born. And when you talk to people they, who have been on the land a long time, they say, well, the, these fish are here. They used to be over here. I've never seen a muskrat in this part of the world before. Why are the mockingbirds up here? They didn't used to be here. And so we're seeing animals moving around as well as vectors, things like Lyme disease is moving across uh, Ontario because of the changing weather patterns. And so given that most novel infectious diseases come from uh, a transfer from animals, and we're having all of these new interactions between animals and vectors and humans, we can anticipate increased risk for future pandemics. And so we need to be setting up systems that prioritize public supply over private profit. And actually, there's an incredible case of this that would be maybe interesting for you to do a follow-up story on, which is Connaught Laboratories um, that used to run out of the University of Toronto. And so they were a public manufacturer responsible for developing um, many of the uh, really, really critical vaccines and supplies uh, during the world wars and making sure that they had they were produced in quantities that were uh, made possible equitable distribution. Um, of course, that got privatized and sold in the 80s. But when we think about what we're going to need to keep us safe into the future, a facility like that or a series of linked facilities across Canada that allow for a public investment in research to then lead to the development of usable medications that we can then produce in a way where no pharmaceutical company is, uh, you know, holding us out to ransom um, because they have the patent rights and we want what they have. Imagine the increased equity, the increased return on investment we could have as taxpayers and the increased uh, security of supply that a system like that could offer. And so I think it's a time where we're at a real moment of transition. We need to take a look at what has gone right and what has not gone right in our current situation and apply that information to set us up with a system that's going to keep us all safe here in Canada and overseas into the future. There's been significant discussion in the media, and you touched on it a few moments ago, about a possible waiver for the Agreement on Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS. This waiver, proposed by India and South Africa, would temporarily remove WTO-enforced intellectual property rights related to COVID-19 treatments such as vaccines. Canada, while not opposed to lifting TRIPS intellectual property restrictions, has not supported it either and has actually contributed to stalling discussions at the World Trade Organization. What can explain such a response from Canada? 
it makes no sense to me whatsoever. What we know is that pharmaceutical lobbying nearly doubled in Canada before we moved to block the TRIPS waiver, according to a report by Breach Media that came out in December by Nicholas Shaw. And so when we look at, for instance, our policy with regards to fossil fuels, and we take into account the fact that, uh, you know, our government often will receive about five visits from fossil fuel lobbyists for every one by an NGO worker, and then we see how much we've subsidized fossil fuels, and then we take a look at this almost doubling of pharmaceutical lobbying. I mean, when you think about elected officials, they're very, very busy. And if they are receiving more visits from one set of people who are telling them to do one thing than they are from people uh, telling them the opposite, you know, they're going to tend to bend towards that, that way of doing things, particularly if at least at the beginning, they felt like, you know, they really weren't in a position to stand up to the corporations. And so at this moment, it, it doesn't make sense uh, what we are doing. It uh, is going to expose Canada to uh, further variants. Well, we it's likely to expose Canadians to further variants because at this moment, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on. So if Omicron's the last variant, maybe supporting uh, the TRIPS waiver isn't so important. But you know, we could have wave 11, you know, in 18 months. And at that point, we'll be very sad if uh, we hadn't made it possible for other countries to produce their own vaccines. And so I think that's a really good question that people should ask their elected officials. I think in some cases, because Canadians have been so busy keeping the wheels on the bus of their own personal lives and professions, we haven't put as much pressure on our elected officials to be fair to people in other countries with regards to vaccine equity because we've essentially just been distracted. And I suspect that they don't quite understand how strongly we feel about this. I, I know that when I started to organize health professionals around this, everybody cared, but everybody was also doing an extra shift at the hospital and didn't have time to edit the paper. And so if I sort of extrapolate that to what other Canadians are doing and you know, all the moms who have been homeschooling and all the dads who've been homeschooling their kids while trying to do their work, it's been difficult for people to mount a political push. And I really hope that our elected officials realize they're probably uh, seeing an underrepresentation of how much Canadians care about this issue simply by virtue of the fact that Canadians themselves are struggling as well. So let's hope that episodes like this and some of the other media coverage we've uh, been having recently can help to make clear to our elected officials that Canadians are fair and decent people and we want to make sure that people in other countries are treated as well as possible. The final question I wanted to ask you that I'm really curious about, given that I know you have expertise in, in planetary health and, and climate change as well, how has you know, vac essentially vaccine hoarding by wealthy countries such as Canada affected our relationship with emerging nations? And will this have spillover effects for broader global development efforts and the level of cooperation and trust that we need to achieve uh, in order to combat climate change? Yes, it's extremely embarrassing. I uh, was part of a vaccine equity panel in the summer, and there were some extremely articulate um, advocates from, I think they were from Nigeria and South Africa, and they were looking at me just, they were actually both appalled and confused, sort of saying, what is Canada thinking? You know, you guys have benefited from tremendous soft power internationally as a result of your generally good reputation for upholding human rights and being a fair player. Do you not realize you're completely 
torquing the reputation that you've built up over generations. Like they were, they were actually legitimately perplexed and I had no answer for them. I just had to say, you know, our, our approach has been indefensible. Um, it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, we've been trying to keep our hospitals running and we haven't been able to pressure our politicians as much as we would have liked to. And you're absolutely right. We're going to pay for this. The uh, climate change negotiations, COP26, it ran the risk of being canceled doing, due to this issue. The major uh, umbrella organization of non-governmental organizations can actually called for the gathering to be canceled because they didn't feel that groups from the global south, uh, from other lower middle income countries would be able to participate to be at the table in adequate uh, representative numbers in order to be able to uh, impact the negotiations. They said, look, if you can't hold this in a fair way, we shouldn't hold it. So, of course, the negotiations uh, were held. But I think that, you know, the fact that Canada really has not been a straight player on this. I mean, the U.S. is supporting the TRIPS waiver. How could we end up being less progressive than the United States? I think this is a matter that, uh, you know, young Canadians, those of us who hope to be able to make a positive difference on many issues internationally moving forward, we, we really need to, to be pushing on this. And that's why I've turned some of my attention from climate change to uh, vaccine equity over the last couple of months. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for joining us on the show today to discuss this important issue like you, I agree that this is something which has regretfully not received enough attention in the national discourse over the past few months. So thank you so much for your time and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks so much, Connor. I mean, one good thing is that emailing or phoning your elected representative is something you can do from a winter's Omicron hibernation. So, you know, adventures and advocacy are a nice way to uh, learn new things and make change. And I, I wish you absolutely the best adventures uh, over the next couple of weeks. Once again, that was Dr. Courtney Howard. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining our episode, Critical COVID-19 Discussions, Freedom Convoy 2022, and Global Vaccine Equity. Today's show was produced by Anna Lazarus, Connor Fraser, and Jessica Pan. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show, or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and on to the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs>